Hello and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Desi VC podcast where I your host Akash Pat speak to leading Indian investors investing in the startup ecosystem and shed light on the nuances of investing in a diverse and complex market like ours. I was on a two week hiatus so apologies for not pushing an episode out during that period as many of you may know why combinator held its demo day during that period and it kind of kept me on my toes. So if you're interested in learning about my YC demo day experience, drop me a note on LinkedIn or Twitter or on email, and I'm happy to share more information on that. But before we start this week's episode, I wanted to share two really interesting startups with you all. The first is called Project Paid Forward, a cloud-based mentorship platform for graduate admissions. Well, we all know how difficult it is to shortlist universities and then write a winning SOP. and project paid forward really provides you an end to end support system to boost your chances of getting an admission into your dream school so visit projectpif.card.co or check out the link in my footnotes the second company is called podium podium is a platform that brings people closer to having virtual conversations around social issues With everything that's happening around us right now from the Black Lives Matter movement in the West to social issues in India we all need a platform that brings pressing topics to the forefront and have discussions and conversations which have power to initiate and ignite actions and podium is letting you do that so visit getpodium.org to learn more or again check out my footnotes now on to this week's episode I have with me Ritik Doshi, general partner at Inventus Capital India. Inventus is an early stage VC firm that invests in pre-series and series A startups. Ritik has participated in India's fast emerging internet ecosystem since 2007, first with Google where he launched several products including Voice Search, Google Mobile app, SMS channels and managed Google News globally. and more recently as the ceo of an e-commerce startup called toggle in bangalore before google he spent 6 years in the us building internet management software for ca technologies ritwik considers himself to be a technologist at heart and he also holds six patents to his name he is a graduate from iit kharagpur and also holds an mba from ncr in france Well I'm really thrilled about this episode because we cover fund dynamics and everything that has to do with establishing and running a VC fund in the country. So without further ado let's jump into the episode and listen to Ritwik. Ritwik welcome to the podcast it's great to have you join me today. Welcome. So oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much Akash. Really happy to be part of the podcast. I'm really excited about our chat today because I want to explore a lot of things from the fund dynamics to everything in between. But before we dive in, how are you and how the last 6 months been for you and Inventus? So uh thanks for asking. So it's been, you know, we are living through an unprecedented times, you know, lots of stuff has been happening in 2020 starting with of course the pandemic. Uh on a personal basis, I think we are doing fine. uh you know thankfully nobody in my family or my immediate friend circle has been impacted so that has been okay uh sad part is we are all stuck at home uh doing our going about our daily lives 
you know, in this new normal, which is each one of us finding our own corner in the house and, you know, sitting in front of a screen, be it my kids, my wife or myself, we are all in front of screens the whole day. But that's the new normal and it looks like it's going to be like this for the next few months. Uh, from a business point of view, I think the first two months, April and maybe to a certain extent May, were uh, you know, really figuring out what is happening and what the impact is going to be, which portfolio companies have been you know, hit, which have been benefited. And you know, after that, things you know, were in control and June onwards, it's literally uh, back to business as usual. The only thing, instead of being on a plane every once a week, we are on Zoom a lot more. That's uh, pretty much about it. Uh, but things things are much are back, getting back to normal. That's great to hear. And people always talk about startups and how they have been affected the most during this period. And I'm I'm very very saddened to see the negative effect of the pandemic across the industry, so to speak. But on the flip side, very few people actually, I mean, even VCs, so to speak. Uh, have spoken about challenges that this has posed for them and their funds. And I'm not talking about just working from home. Now, I mean more from a macro perspective, from a fund economics perspective. How did those conversations unfold at your firm in the beginning months of the pandemic? And how, where are you right now? So, no, the, the first, you know, uh, and I'll talk about that. Uh, the fund dynamics are very, very, got impacted a lot in the initial time frame. Uh, the way we started thinking through was our first reaction was, Hey, what is going to happen to the portfolio? Uh, you know, you make a certain investment based on certain assumptions of growth, certain assumptions of how the macroeconomy is going to work. And suddenly all bets are off and you want to make sure that take a stock of things, take a step back and say, are you going to take a lot of losses? Uh, if yes, how do you minimize that? Uh, if not, how do you protect something from uh, your portfolio from hitting into massive losses? So that was the first reaction, you know, from purely from a fund dynamics point of view. Uh, so that is on the portfolio side of things. But at the same time, if you think, if you remember what we call what happened in March, April, there was a lot of uncertainty for also from the LP side of things, right? Where uh, markets were down you know, 40, 50%, so even though the stock markets have recovered, markets were, were down. And nobody knew whether did we bottom out at that point in time? We're gonna, you know, you know, things are gonna get worse from there or not. So that means from a cash availability point of view, also, you had to be very, very mindful because you know, we as VCs don't necessarily sit on the entire pile of cash. We keep doing capital calls as and when things are needed. So that means the constraints were also moving on the LP side of things, and we had to balance all of that. So that you know, that is where uh, you know it became a very complex tricky balancing equa uh, equation where I want to make sure that my portfolio is secure because that's uh, my fiduciary responsibility. But at the same time, you know, I can't assume that capital is available and I can, you know, and there is an open tap and, and I can deal. So there's a little of a balancing act. There's a lot of trade-offs that have to be made. Uh, but eventually I think things uh, fell in place. So when you talk about the LP side of things, what kind of questions were they asking you? Because one, of course, they ask you about the health of the portfolio and which are the ones that are doing well, which are hard hit because of the yeah. pandemic as such. But outside of those questions, what were the pressing issues that came up during the conversations when you spoke with your LPs? Okay. So I think the biggest issue comes off is around liquidity. So, you know, the, the LPs ask you that, hey, are you going to make a capital call? If yes, when, how much? Uh, uh, because they really need planning on their side. 
and you know there may be issues where a lot of lps are not in a position or, or don't have enough liquidity because what is happening in the external markets and their own businesses uh, for themselves uh, and so that becomes a question and so it had to be a really planned out thought through capital call and uh, or capital planning and not capital call capital planning had to be thought through a lot and you have to be mindful of of not only what your portfolio needs but also the needs of your uh, lps where they may be facing issues on on their businesses because you know at the end of the day the economy is hit by minus 20% or minus 23% at that point in time so everybody is hit i'm guessing these must have been some really really difficult conversations to have as well because some set of investors were perhaps in a better position than than the others and yeah. uh, you know the ones who were maybe in a weaker position they might have been a little more skeptical especially about capital calls at that point yeah. So we have two sets of LPs. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of LPs who are investing in this asset class for the very first time, uh, and for them, uh, the uncertainty is higher. Uh, and then, then we had some set of LPs, you know, who've been investing, who are seasoned LPs, and for them, oh hey, we've seen the dot-com bust, we've seen the 2008 crisis, we've seen this crisis also. And by the way, uh, immediately after every crisis, there's always a great investment opportunity. So don't worry about it. Go ahead, continue investing. and then there was a set which has said hey we've invested this asset class for the very first time i have no clue how this asset class behaves in in times of uncertainty so i want to probably take a step back right so it's 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 that mix that you you have to deal with was there at any point some sort of an education that had to be brought about from your side where yeah. you were going back and telling the ones who were really skeptical about this period first time investors so to speak and letting them know that hey this has kind of happened before we have investors yeah. on our on our side on our portfolio who have who've seen on weathered storms in the past before and this is just a i would say a hiccup in the larger scheme of yeah. things yeah. Uh, did that ever no. happen yes absolutely so i think one of the first things that we had to do was of course get into uh, so let me talk on both sides as to what happened as to how we reacted the first thing that happened was you know usually when we invest in portfolio companies we have a monthly board meeting or a quarterly board meeting depending on the stage of the company uh, all of that got compressed into almost weekly board meetings uh, for every portfolio company because we are taking things were changing on a week on week basis nobody knew what was going on so we we were monitoring very very carefully and and helping or working closely with the founders to uh, redo the financial plan or redo the business plan for the next year Uh, assuming multiple worst case scenarios hey you know you may have a one month lockdown you may have a six month lockdown whatever the case may be and ensure that uh, you can survive and you can weather the storm so that was the first exercise that happened on the portfolio side of things simultaneously you you know you have calls with your lps and you kind of give them comfort that hey by the way these are the x number of portfolio companies that we have of this these three have been really badly affected but these are the measures that we've taken to mitigate that effect these companies uh, you know yes they will be impacted temporarily but at least there no imminent danger and there were some companies which actually benefited during the covid times you know companies which are in the gaming space companies which are in the health tech space edtech some of those companies definitely you know benefited uh, in this period so you kind of give them a a full picture of what is happening also uh, even though as inventors you know we've been around for a decade now in india but if you look at my partner samir and parath you know they've been investing for 20 years and they've seen the dot com bust they've seen the lehman brothers bust and you know they've weathered that storm and so that also that experience uh, 
as managers and as GPs, we had within the firm as to how to deal with these situations. And that kind of helped us also give a lot of comfort to, uh, to the LPs. I guess it's really important to have people who have been through this process and they're not first time managers, so to speak. Yeah. And might've been really interesting. Um, I haven't spoken to anybody and this is perhaps something that for my to-do list as well. First time fund managers who have raised money from first time investors, that conversation, how it would have unfolded might've been very, very different from how your conversations have unfolded because you guys are senior seasoned investors, so to speak, okay. both from you, your, you personally yourself and your partners, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, that is, that's really interesting that you mentioned that uh, that gives a lot of investors comfort knowing that people have been through this before and this is just a hiccup in the process and things will eventually go back to being normal, uh, quote unquote. And during this period at any point, did any of the LPs ask questions around future investments and what is, what is the future going to look like? How are you planning this out? What is the next 24 months going to look like? What's your strategy? And how much have you had to adapt from the vision that you had, say, 12 months ago to where you are right now and thinking about the next 12 months? So we we had a lot of deep thinking uh, and several debates, discussions internally around how should we handle this. And uh, to put it very simplistically, here's what we concluded uh, as we are predominantly pre-Series A and Series A investors. That's the stage at which come in. And once in a while, maybe do a seed investment. Uh, the stage at which we come in, it usually takes a company seven or eight years to kind of you know, build up and, and, and become something meaningful or, or for us to realize something uh, meaningful out of it. Now, if a company is exiting within two to three months of our investments, it's usually not a you know, great return on investment. But for any company which is good, it's a seven-year run. Now, if I take this whole COVID situation into perspective from a seven-year or an eight-year timeline, the hope is that of the seven years, this is going to be a one-and-a-half-year period. So which means as, as a percentage of the lifetime of my investment, it's a small percentage. It should not really, it really, really impact in the long run. Yes, things may get delayed by, by a year in terms of our realizations or in terms of our growth met, uh, goals, but nothing should otherwise change. Uh, if this is a really a five-year phenomena, then you have much, much, much bigger problems in hand. So let us assume that this is a one or at best 18-month uh, uh, scenario where there's going to be a slowdown. Uh, that means from a seven-year time frame, nothing changes uh, and we should not change anything in our strategy because we are investing for, a, for the long haul. The only thing that we need to be cautious about is that, uh, that the companies where we invest in it are probably not directly impacted by COVID negatively. Uh, and have the wherewithal to weather the storm out for an 18-month scenario. And from an, the capital sufficiency point of view, the company, instead of having 12 months of cash in the bank balance, should at least have 24 months of cash in the bank balance. And if that is the case, I think it should be good to go. So that was, you know, that was the consideration that we had. And with that thought, we decided to, you know, let's stick to our strategy, which is we'll continue to do early stage investments. We'll continue to back uh, founders who are, doing innovative stuff in, in great markets and let's go ahead and do it. And in fact, we've done, uh, we've done two investments so far since the beginning of uh, COVID. So things, things are you know, as normal as they can be uh, from an investment scenario pace point of view. Now, I want to drop parallels to the conversations that the LPs have had with you, which is okay. you guys are seasoned investors and therefore you are able to give them a lot of comfort. Now, applying that same logic to your investment 
in the two companies that you've invested in or the companies that you've looked at in that period during the whole pandemic, how much did that sort of mentality also apply to you when you're looking at investment, wherein you were like, I'm not going to take a bet on the first time founder, but we will look at seasoned entrepreneurs for our investments during this period because they have the experience to really see this period through. Did that ever occur or were these discussions something that you consciously had or was it very opportunistic point of view where you looked at companies like how you probably would have looked at last year when things... No, no, it was very opportunistic. It was very, very opportunistic from that point of view. We did not uh, kind of create this distinction between first-time founders and and non-seasoned founders. Uh, But uh, here's where, where things became different from an investment point of view. And at the early stages, you know, when we are looking at a business, it is not about analyzing a PNL. It's not about analyzing a balance sheet of a, of a company. It is understanding the, the product. It is understanding the market. And to a large extent, building comfort and relationship with the founder. Because you know, the whole diligence period and the evaluation period may be a three-month period at best. right? So when you, from the first meeting till you, you know, dive deep into the company, get an understanding, right. issue a term sheet and close around, so three months or a four months. That's the transactional period of the thing. But once that transactional period is over, you need to be working alongside with the founder and be on the same side of the table. And that's a seven-year journey, which means that your relationship and your comfort with the founder is extremely, extremely important. Uh, And the challenge now is that you are trying to do that or replicate that building relationship over Zoom calls as opposed to being physically. So in, in the past, you would have gone and spent some time with the founder at the founder's office, observed the founder in his or her environment alongside with their colleagues, uh, had lunch with the founders, had coffees with the founders, and so on and so forth, where you know, you're discussing and talking about things which are beyond business. And, and there's a lot of what you call the water cooler conversations or, or chit-chat uh, kind of stuff that happens, which gives that comfort, which helps you build that relationship. And that part is missing. And that is the challenging part of doing deals at this point in time, as opposed to, you know, let me go after seasoned founders or non-seasoned founders and things like that. Uh, It is how do I build that comfort with this founder? How do I build, how do I ensure that there is good chemistry between us? So what did you do? Like how did, what, what, what different steps and measures that you take to ensure that that level of comfort was perhaps achieved over Zoom. Did you get on more Zoom calls? And were they like... Yeah, no, so we, get, we, so we got on more Zoom calls. Uh, also, we got uh, the founders to present to the entire partnership very early on in the process, you know, uh, to get, you know, build comfort with the rest of the team. Uh, because you're in an environment where uh, you want as many data points as possible. And so feedback from your peers uh, your partners and your colleagues as to things that you know I may have overlooked uh, becomes very, very important early on. And so that was the only probably change that we did in the process is that, hey, let's do more calls and let's get them in front of everybody uh, more frequently rather than you know have one big IC meeting towards the end. You know, it's, it's very interesting to see how different VC firms have taken different strategies because I have, I've been speaking to other firms as well. And a lot of them said, we're going to sit back for two to three months and just see how things play out within our portfolio, have conversations with our LPs, which is very similar to what you've been doing as well. Uh, and I, re- I really want to probe further here and get into some really interesting questions. But before we do that, I'm incredibly curious about your journey and uh, wanted to find out about how you ended up founding Inventus. 
did you always know you wanted to be in venture capital? Uh, it's like, it, it, take us through that sequence of events that led you to where you are today. No, I'm an accidental VC. I, I don't think I ever planned a career in, in venture capital uh, or, or envisioned myself to be in the venture capital space uh, out there. So I'm an engineer at heart. Uh, I, I love tech uh, and I still, you know, you know if, you, if you talk to some of my founders, you know, uh, probably their product and the tech and behind the product probably fascinates me more than the business side of things uh, out there. Uh, so my journey is I'm an engineer, you know, graduate from IIT in 99, uh, moved to US pretty much uh, within six months of graduating. And if you recall, 99 was the peak of the dot-com boom at that point in time. So the first right. wave of, of internet as it was happening in, in US and Silicon Valley, I caught that wave, uh, uh, joined a startup at that point in time. I was one of the first few engineers at that startup got acquired by a large company called CA. And uh, that's how I spent my first uh, seven, seven and a half years of my career. Uh, all of that was in engineering roles in US. Uh, decided to you know, shift gears and do an MBA in between. Uh, so I went to NCR, which is in Fontainebleau, uh, France. Uh, got my MBA and then, uh, you know, tech was my love. So you know, the only, the default choice post MBA was obviously come back to the tech industry. And uh, I got into, I joined Google after that. And it's with Google I came to Bangalore. Uh, so Google was setting up in 2005 and 2006 is when Google set up a product engineering office in Bangalore. And it was a very small office. And by around 2007 is when they were uh, thinking of expanding and get more product people in. And I was one of the first few product guys to come in and uh, be part of the Google's India office. And I spent roughly four years at Google, uh, built a bunch of exciting products. Uh, the first set of products were all around speech recognition. So the stuff that you see on uh, all the Google assistants and Google homes right now, uh, the very, very early versions of that were kind of built by uh, the team that I was, and I was the product manager for that. And uh, after four years of Google, did a small stint at becoming an entrepreneur for a year and a half, didn't work out. Uh, and at that time, I met Samir and Parag, you know, and, and I, of course, known a lot of the VC industry was very small in India at that time, and I kind of knew everybody. Uh, Samir and Parag were thinking of, you know, raising a second fund at that point in time, a new fund, and add someone to the team. And we got talking, and um, I, you know, became a VC. But the interesting thing was, I was not sure whether I wanted to be a VC at that point in time. And so what, you know, the uh, what we discussed was that, hey, let's do one thing. This sounds interesting, but I don't know whether it's meant for me or not. Uh, let me become an EIR for six months. And uh, so, so the nice. title was an EIR, but for all practical purposes, you know, I will be, you know, uh, not coming in and do the role of an EIR as to start a company, but act like a VC only. And then we'll, you know, do everything together. So it's like a dating period. And we'll do six months of dating. And if I like this and you like me and, and we all like each other, then, you know, maybe we can get married and I become a full-time VC. It, it's the first partner internship that they can so that kind we've of, heard of. Kind of, yeah. And, and you know, and six months later, I think I really enjoyed it. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And I, uh, I decided to become a full-time VC, and we went ahead and raised the fund, and uh, that's how it all happened. It's been nine years since that. You know, it's very funny that you mentioned that because one thing that I've noticed on this podcast, I've had about twenty-eight guests so far is that literally everybody who has been on the show has mentioned that they were an accidental VC. 
And it's so unbelievable how people end up founding VC firms or end up in venture capital as such. And not to sound too ageist here, uh, that's a disclaimer, but your generation are like the founding fathers of venture capital in India. And I ended up in VC as well by accident. But when I speak to kids in high school or freshmen in college, especially here in the US, all of them are like, I want to start my own VC fund. I want to be in venture capital. So they know from the get-go that this is a definite career path that they want to be in. And uh, I guess it was not the same for you and me. So it's very interesting that a lot of people end up in venture capital, especially in India, you know, when we talk about as, you know, people who stumbled into it. No, no. So I grew up in the you know late 80s, early 90s, and I was in college in 90s. Venture capital didn't exist in India. You know, the concept didn't exist. The best, and I, and I was growing as a part of the first IT boom that was happening. So the best, you know, your career aspiration is always driven by the, you know, what is happening around you. And Infosys right. was happening around us. And so for the brightest of minds uh, from my generation, it was becoming, you know, hey, can I start an IT company or a tech company of my own? And so in India was Infosys and, and in Silicon Valley, the dot-com boom was happening. So you either went either towards the IT services side of things or starting a tech company of your own. And that became the aspiration. And only after 10 years or so, you suddenly realize that, hey, by the way, you know, there's this new opportunity coming up in India. And India is at that cusp where, where everything else is falling in place. And maybe there's an opportunity for financing these smart entrepreneurs uh, to fuel the next phase of growth. And you just happen to be at the right place at the right time uh, and get, a, get into the VC space. Uh, so that's how it has happened for most of the VCs you know, in India who started around 10 years back. Uh, and of course, now it's an established industry and a lot of new, uh, you know, I, I, I meet a lot of new MBA uh, grads who, you know, from the day they joined the B school are very, very clear that I want a job in VC and they start networking uh, very, very hard. It's, it's funny you say that because I didn't know I wanted to end up in venture capital yeah. when I started, uh, when I went to grad school either. And I, this yeah. is very accidental for me. I, on, 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 on the flip side, wanted to work in sports and entertainment. And I felt this is an opportunity for me to like go out and really pursue what I want to do, which is be part of the entertainment yeah. industry. And accidentally is when I bumped into the uh, the firm that I was talking to you about, which basically makes investments in sports as such. Right. And then I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I worked in startups my entire life. Now there's an opportunity to invest in sports. Why not look at this opportunity? This is very, very intriguing. Never thought I'd be at the intersection of investing tech and sports. So yeah. that kind of opened up a very new avenue for me, which I had never even thought about before going in. So I guess things have really escalated in the last five years and people now set out with the goal of being in venture capital right from their undergrad days. Okay. And it's a function of the ecosystem. You know, look at the number of startups. I think the current heroes in India are the startup founders, uh, right? So if startup founders are the current heroes, you suddenly, if I'm a kid who's growing up, I'm either going to look up to a startup founder or I'm going to get into, hey, what is it that's enabling this ecosystem or what is enabling these startup founders to become great? Hey, oh, there's this industry called venture capital which is enabling them. And so you become aware of that and that becomes part of your aspiration. That's great. I love that point that you make there. Now, shifting the focus a little bit onto inventors, yeah. um, talk to us about your thesis and um, you know, talk to us about how when you first started the fund um, way back a decade ago, how has the market changed since right. then? 
And we obviously spoke about how the market has changed in the last six months or so. But from the first time that you launched a fund or when you were part of fund two to where you are uh, in, or in five years ahead, let's say to the 2016, 2017 range, how did you see the industry evolve and how are you seeing the industry evolve now as such? So uh, I think the biggest change that has happened is in the quality of entrepreneurs, the type of entrepreneurs, uh, uh, the quantity of entrepreneurs, that has been the single biggest uh, change that has happened. So when, uh, you know, when we started investing at the beginning of the decade, uh, you know, most often you would find an entrepreneur who's, you know, uh, probably worked for seven, 10 years in a global IT company, uh, you know, it could be a Google or it could be, I don't know, whatever, some, some, some global IT company or an IT, or been a long timer at an IT services company like a Wipro or an Infosys and is coming out and uh, trying to do an, becoming an entrepreneur in India. Uh, that's what the majority of the things were. The B2C or the consumer base in India was still very, very small. Uh, so most companies tended to be B2B software uh, type of companies. Uh, and, and that, you know, that was the nature of investments. That was the nature of deal flow. And those, those are the type of entrepreneurs out there. And the number of VCs were also a handful. So, you know, you would write your series A check would be a million dollar would become a series A round in India at that point in time. And the good old days, the good old days. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I think the only examples of young founders at that point in time who were like first time entrepreneurs who were building it big uh, were either the likes of uh, funny who was a founder of red bus or Sachin Bansal and Vinny Bansal who had done Flipkart, etc. And you know, hey, yeah, these are very young founders, uh, you know, dreaming big, trying to build a B2C internet company in India. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? But let's, you know, few few of us took some bets. Axel took a bet in Flipkart. We took a bet in Redbus, and let's see what happens uh, with very little, with actually not knowing what's going to happen, uh, literally. But hey, it seems exciting. Seems like a very passionate founder, and thankfully those investments clicked, those companies became big and started this whole wave of new set of entrepreneurs who would come in. Uh, and 2015, I think probably 2014 or 15 was really the cusp and the change, in my opinion, where you suddenly saw not only a large number of entrepreneurs jumping in, uh, most college kids graduating out of college. Uh, startups became the default choice of job as opposed to going to an Infosys or going to a, a Google. Uh, and that created this whole wave of entrepreneurs that we are seeing today. And at the same time, of course, Reliance, Geo, and, and a lot of other things happened. So internet became mainstream in India. Uh, many global investors came in. Late stage investments started happening. So you would, uh, you know, I clearly remember in 2000, nine or 2010, I think we were doing some analysis and I was part of Google at that point in time. There were like literally a handful of companies in India whose market capitalization was over billion dollars. And today you have, in a span of five years, we have 20 odd private companies who are unicorns and whose market capitalization is about billion dollars. So we've, we've come a long way since then. Literally come a long way. I, I love how we're currently in this phase right now where founders who VCs bet on back in the day 
are now turning out to be LPs in their investors' funds. Yeah. And that's yeah. such an interesting cyclical uh, point that we are in the ecosystem that really shows you how far the Indian VC ecosystem has evolved and how far we've come in that whole process yeah. where that money is, I, I don't want to say money is being recycled, but I want to say people are seeing the value of the ecosystem here. People are seeing yeah. the evolution of the of ventures and asset class and it being an opportunity for a lot of investors to you know, put back money into the ecosystem because they've seen the returns either through their own journeys or through what's happening in the industry yeah. as such. But from a fund perspective, what is your current thesis and what are you looking at? So our thesis is, a, it's a very simple thesis. So we are, you know, all three of us come from tech backgrounds. So we understand tech. Uh, so we said, okay, we'll stick to what we understand and that is tech. So we'll do tech focused investments uh, sector agnostic, so it can be anything. It can be edtech, health tech, space tech, whatever you want to name it. Uh, doesn't matter. So sector agnostic, tech focused, pre-Series A or Series A investments. Those are the both the segments that we'll invest in. Uh, and uh, the only filtration criteria that we put in is that we need to uh, see capital efficient business models. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, there's some business models where you need hundred million dollars just to prove or just to figure out whether this business is viable or not viable. Uh, we will stay away from them. But there are some business models where, you know, within the first five, 10, 15 million dollars, the viability of the business gets uh, proven out and the rest of the capital is largely for scaling, uh, not necessarily to prove uh, whether the business is viable or not. So that's what we mean by capital efficient business models. And that's what we will continue doing. Uh, so that's what we've done in the past and that's what we'll continue doing. And of course, in terms of sectors, sectors keep evolving. So like five years back, we would have never done a, a hardware deal. But today, in the new fund, we've actually done two or three hardware deals also because we believe that uh, we are at this place where uh, hardware, you know, software is adding a lot of magic to this hardware and, and creating strong differentiations. And so maybe it's a good time to do something like that. So that with thesis keeps evolving in terms of, you know, segments, but broadly it remains the same. Tech focused, uh, broad pre-series A, series A, capital efficient business models. I find it interesting that you mentioned series A because if you take a look at the ecosystem as such, you probably see like a bubble. It's not a curve, but it's, you see like a bubble structure where you have a lot of capital either on one side, which is seed and pre-seed, and then you have a lot of money on the growth stage side. But you have very little money that's going into your series A levels or series B, so to speak, as such. Yeah. Why and how did you you guys come up with that particular class that you, you decided to invest in? Uh, what, what choices that led you to say we would perhaps look at Series A? Because that's, that's, that's maybe when companies have just found product market fit. Or when you invest at Seed, it's, it's, you, you still have a lot of competition. But Series A happens to be one of those areas which has seen very little activity in not just the last year, but also in the last decade as okay. such. So what, what made it, what made you guys think about it? So that's where the opportunity lies, you know, because it's barbell shaped, we are uniquely positioned to pick and choose uh, as a series A investor, you know, so you have a large set of, you know, uh, companies that I can look at and uh, you rarely get into this, uh, FOMO or fear of missing out when you're in the series A stage because you get to look at the companies, you get to look at the founders, you get to look at the product market fit. And by the way, if I'm making five investments a year, I actually know that there are probably twice that many 
that I could have done, but I'm not doing it because of the way my fund is structured and the size of the fund and the kind of constraints that I put on, on the fund in terms of the pace and velocity. So that means I have, I have more supply of startups than what I can invest in and which is a good place to be from an investment point of view. So that means you, you get to choose, you get to think, you get to really build your conviction before getting in. And Series A, as you mentioned, because it's barbell shaped uh, in India, is still a more collaborative in nature than competitive in nature uh, in India. So you have a handful of firms, probably 10 or maybe 12 firms, which are in the Series A space. And uh, more often than not, you, you realize that when a startup is talking to one or more of these funds, uh, instead of competing on Series A deals, you end up collaborating on Series A deals. And that's right. why... If you see the press, most of the time it will be Fund A and Fund B invest. $5 same, million. yeah, it's the same name. Uh, yeah. Same name is Fund A and Fund B invest five million dollars in some company X. So it tells you that we are all collaborating together. So we are de-risking ourselves from that point of view. We have, uh, and uh, it's a fun place to be that way. From and how important is it for you to double down on some of your well-performing companies? And if you're only looking at Series A, one. Of course, I mean, doubling down on the companies that are doing well. And two, how important is, is it for you to forge some really strong relationships with later stage VC firms who will then eventually take your portfolio companies and get them to the next stage and beyond? It is the most important part of, of a venture capital firm. And this is what, at least from what I've seen, distinguishes good managers versus first-time managers. Or I won't call it first-time managers. But good managers versus bad managers or right. not so good managers is how are you handling your reserves strategy? One of the, you know, I may have a hundred million dollar fund, but am I going to put the entire hundred million dollars in the first time checks or I'm going to, how much am I going to initially put in, how much I'm going to reserve for doubling down and how well do I build the relationships for with my series B and C investors to take my company next uh, forward. Uh, so that is what is extremely critical in, you know, generating good financial returns for your uh, fund. Uh, and we have a, at least what we follow is that on an average for every dollar invested at the pre-series or a series A level, we have a dollar and a half reserve for the follow-on rounds. So it's a, it's a very, very healthy reserve ratio. Now, mind you, the dollar and a half is an average number, which means that the winners actually end up getting more than dollar and a half in, right. su in subsequent rounds. And of course, some losers will not necessarily get uh, those kind of numbers. But that also means the amount of investments that you can make on a yearly, ba yearly basis is limited. You're not looking yes. at making 15 investments in a year. You're looking exactly. at somewhere between six to eight. Exactly. And not even six to eight. We are roughly at around five, probably. Right. Given our fund size and given our pace and things like that. And that's why I, came, uh, I made that point that, you know, if I'm making five investments, I know that there are 10 which are actually good. Uh, and, you know, I'm just making a judgment call on, okay, on which five out of those 10 I should, you know, pick. So, so your process, have, your diligence been. process has to be like super efficient if you're only making investments in five. And that's a yes. very, very sort of a bold bet to take, especially when yeah. you have conversations back with your LP saying five companies in that you obviously want most of them to, I mean, you obviously want all of them to succeed, but yeah. in a realistic scenario, you perhaps will only have two or three performing, yes. uh, you know, at the rate, yeah. which probably gives your fund all the returns that it yeah. requires. Yes. yes. So yeah, so the deal flow at the series stage is massive. So if I, I'm, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, but I know that 
more than 2000 companies flow through our system wow. on an annual basis and you end up making five out of that 2000 uh, and not all 2000 of course are, are great uh, right, right. i'm talking about everything that you know is flowing through the system but yeah. that's the kind of ratio that you have uh, at the series a stage so I guess this is a very uh, good question from at least my perspective. I'm giving myself a pat on the back for no reason. But uh, <laughs> do you often or how much do you rely on your co-investors to really help with your deal flow? And how much do you pay attention and go out by yourself sourcing companies? So bulk of the investments that we've done uh, is sourcing ourselves. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, most of our investments also have co-investors along with us. And so the way it ends up happening is uh, that more often than not, because the ecosystem is small, uh, and and say if I like, say, you know, I'm, I'm talking, working closely with the founder, evaluating investments in that company. Uh, once I've reached a stage where I've built a comfort that hey, I think I want to make an investment over here, I actually open and open up myself and have a very frank conversation, saying that hey, I like you, I want to get do that investment, uh, but I would really like to partner with someone. Who else are you talking to within the ecosystem? Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you cross that stage where you build comfort with the founder and the founders also build comfort with you, the founder will open up. And then I know that, hey, these are the three other people what they're talking to. Then you quickly reach out and, and collaborate and actually do the deal together. So that's one way it happens. The second way it happens is that, hey, we liked it. We, we write a term sheet, we price it, and then we go out and, and seek co-investors to co- uh, done, co-invest along with us. Uh, so those are the two ways in, in, in which it usually happens. But almost always, uh, you build your conviction independently uh, first, uh, irrespective of whether there's a co-investor or no co-investor. A quick follow-up to that. Do you often end up helping the companies that you issue a term sheet to in terms of filling the round? Or is it mostly the responsibility of the founder to go out and get the other investors? No. So once we are convinced, and if, if we are writing the term sheet and the round is not filled, we work closely alongside with the founder to and reach out to everybody to fill in the round. Okay. Everybody in our network. Yeah. Right. I guess that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're making yeah. fine investments in a year, you have the resources and time to actually help companies fill that round. Correct. Right. Uh, that's, and you know, I want to move on to my second segment where I'd like to spend a little more time discussing the fundraising aspects for VCs yeah. themselves for their own funds. And I saw an interview of you and your partners recently post the launch of the most uh, latest fund. Uh, and in that you mentioned how the majority of your fund was domestically raised, as opposed to other VC firms who still raise a lot of outside capital. And even you guys have raised outside capital for your previous funds as well. I'm really curious as to why you and the team decided to raise domestically. And is that basically an indication or that Indian investors are now ready to cash in on the VC asset class, so to say? So yes, so you know, a couple of things happened. Uh, actually, three things uh, happened which kind of triggered some of these things. Uh, one is if you look at what happened in China, uh, and China 15 years ago, or maybe even 20 years ago, uh, was completely US or European capital uh, is what fueled the initial wave of venture capital within China. This is I'm talking about early 2000s uh, in, in China. Within a decade, the whole thing completely turned the other way around. By 2013-14 or maybe 2015, China was 80% domestic money and 20% uh, 
outside money. So that was, and which kind of made us think that, hey, it's likely something like this is going to happen in India. And the reason for that was because by the time we started thinking of this new fund, we had seen this wave of entrepreneurs who had already exited, who had already made some money and were ready to put money into this asset class. Uh, that means money is going to come back. So that was the first thing that happened. Uh, it made us realize that, hey, this is going to happen sooner or later. And if it's definitely going to happen, might as well start the process earlier. And that was, and we, to be honest, we didn't anticipate that 60, 70% of the fund will be India. We thought at best 20% of the fund will be Indian money. Uh, but let's start the process. That's how we start. If I could interrupt Second, you there quickly for yeah. a moment, sorry. Um, yeah. You mentioned that there was a lot of comparisons and uh, similarities to what happened in China. But China saw exits, yeah. which India didn't. Correct. So what really gave investors conviction yeah. when you didn't really have anything to show for that sort of uh, change in pattern? Yeah. So that's the second point that I'm coming to why Indian investors, it's okay. better to have Indian investors than global. Because all said and done, the Indian ecosystem has actually not generated exits or liquidity for all the global investors who are out there. So when you reach out to a global investors, you know, they are looking at India from multiple angles, not only venture capital as an asset class, where they may say, oh yeah, startup ecosystem is booming. That's great. But where are the exits? I invested 10 years back and you know, I've still not seen my money yet. They see political risk in India. He says, you know, you know, there's kind of, you know, there's political uncertainty around regulations. At some point in time, you know, a new Vodafone GAR issue will come up. Tomorrow, Mauritius will get banned. Someday, some other tax rules will come in. I really have no clarity on what is happening from a uh, regulatory and a political risk point of view. And I haven't seen exits. And then suddenly, because Silicon Valley is booming, you know, I may uh, decide to shift some of my money out of from India into Silicon Valley and so on and so forth. So you are exposed to some of those global uh, events and global point of views, which makes fundraising from outside sometimes harder, uh, unless you are a, uh, already an established global fund like a Sequoia or a Lightspeed or something of that sort. And so we wanted to mitigate against that. That was one of the things. If you're an Indian investor or if you're an Indian, not investor, if you're a wealthy Indian or an Indian institution, uh, because of the way the economy, you would want large part of your money to be sitting in India and you are not really, you know, as concerned about the, the macroeconomic situation of India as compared to what a global investor would think of it. So an Indian investor is more likely to put money in and be more stable or be more committed to India than a global investment. That was the other reason why we thought we'll, we'll go and, and tap into the Indian investor base. And that hypothesis turned out to be actually true uh, out there. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, when we decided to tap into raise this fund, the first person we spoke to was Pani of Redbus. Uh, we had invested in this company in the past. He had exited, he had some liquidity and you know, over a coffee conversation, he said, hey, we are thinking of raising a fund. We will, and we want to raise Indian money at this point in time. Uh, would you be interested? And it was a 10 minute conversation and he, this was the first commitment that came into the fund. And that was again, your point is a lot of founders, you know, who kind of made money are put, putting money back into the ecosystem. So that's what's the, the second thing that happened. And third, of course, from a regulatory point of view, AIFs uh, had, you know, come in as a structure approved by SEBI. And it was a very, very clear structure and a clean structure, which allowed us to raise domestic money. 
So combination of these few things that you said, hey, let's go and try it out. That's very interesting. It's not easy investing in venture capital. I mean, it's one asset class, which is also very cyclical. And the boom bust cycle, appetite for risk needs to be uh, incredibly high considering time diversification where above average returns tend to offset below average returns over long-term horizons. So when you decided to fundraise domestically, once that decision was made by the partners, uh, where does one start? You know, you obviously have a great network. You had some reputation with the uh, previous funds um, and you're also raised capital outside it. How different is raising capital domestic from those outside? And what do those conversations initially look like with potential LPs? So, I mean, and, uh, maybe Paninda Sama was a great example uh, and maybe an outlier, in fact, because he was somebody who knew you guys from yeah. before and, you know, he had, you guys had taken a bet on him and kind of gave you guys great returns mm-hmm. and he loved obviously working with you. All of that kind of like check, uh, check the box. And one question that I often get from most of my listeners also, um, and especially those who want to start a fund someday is what should they be prepared for uh, during meetings with potential LPs? Yeah, we're prepared for a lot of no's. what kind of questions do do, 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 you know come up during these conversations yes no so it is a venture capital is a very funny asset class so you have to uh it's a very hard sell very 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 hard sell. so you have to first go with the set of people that you know and who trust you and have a lot of comfort with you and for us it became the founders that we had backed in the past and who had kind of exited and found liquidity so those are the first set of guys but you know if I were to give you a very simplistic pitch, right, as to uh, if you are an LP listening to a pitch right, and you were to really dump it down, dump everything down from my pitch, this is what it will sound like. Uh, and and uh, you will say, okay, we are three great guys. We've been investing uh, in the venture capital space for the last decade or so. Uh, Indian uh, startup ecosystem is booming. So why don't you give us some of your money? And by the way, when you give us some of your money, we are not, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to invest in because I don't know myself. You have to have faith that I will find great founders, great entrepreneurs from somewhere. I will put money in them. Uh, they will be loss making for the next five, six years. I'll keep pouring money into, into these loss making companies for the next five, six years. And hopefully eight years down the line, I will make some money for you. So why don't you give me some money of yours and uh, just sit back and relax and watch me pour money into this loss making startups. And by the way, which startups, I don't know. Over the next few four years, I'll discover them. That's literally what the pitch sounds like. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of, of an LP, this is extremely, extremely scary, right? He says, hey, I'm going to give money to these three dudes who are going to you know, spray money into startups. They don't even know which startups as of right now, right? Those startups are going to lose money for the next five, six years. And it's like literally hope that eight years down the line, you know, some of them will make money. So why should I give money to you? And I'm, I'm locking all my money for the next 10 years in a hope that you will, you will be able to choose good startups and those good startups after burning tons of money will generate some return. This doesn't make sense. Right? So it's a very, 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 very hard sell. And that's why you need to be able to, uh, uh, that's why you, you hear a lot of no's. Uh, 
within the VC ecosystem, especially if you try to raise domestically, especially if you're going to a set of people who've never invested in this asset class before. Uh, and uh, then trust becomes important that, hey, no, I, yeah, I don't understand this fully. I don't understand how this mechanism works, but I know that these guys are credible guys. I know that they have done this in the past and I know that they have generated returns and I can trust them with my money. So that establishing that trust becomes literally the only thing which ends up being, uh, you know, working towards you. And that's why you need to have, you know, to get a few yeses and few money, you have to have several hundred meetings. So it's imperative to say that you need to have a great network to begin with. Yes. And you need to have a great network and, and, and reputation and, and reputation because you need everybody in the network to trust you with their money. Yeah. And how, how much of the bet is on you and the partners than the strategy and the vision that the fund is going to have for the next it's 10 years? On the it's mostly on the partners. It's mostly on the partners. And, and I'm guessing, yeah. yeah, sorry. So there is, there's some amount of strategy. So from an LP's point of view, you say, okay, yeah, you know, I have, you know, allocated some amount to public market, some amount to debt. Maybe I can put 5% of my money in, in, in this venture capital class. Uh, then that's how all they think about. They, they don't think about, okay, should I put it in a series B fund or should I put it in a series A fund or a seed fund or this, that, that's not what they think about. They just say, okay, these guys seem like good guys who can probably deliver a return. Uh, and, and I'm going to put my money to them and leave them alone to do that thing for the next 10 years and hope that they will generate returns. So it's, it's literally betting into the uh, reputation and the credibility of the, uh, of the team. I was doing a workshop the other day and one of the uh, attendees asked me this question, which was very interesting. And they said, as founders, we have to take so many calls with one particular VC, maybe sometimes upwards of five to seven before they can even make a decision. Not that it's a yes or a no. Sometimes it's just seven conversations to even say a no. Yeah. How many conversations do you have? Six with one with one in with one oh, investor. Okay. With one investor, multiple. Yeah. Same here. Five to six conversations with uh, with each investor. So it depends, right? Like, as I said, the outliers like Paninder Sama, who within the first fifteen minutes, it was a ten was, minute, minute, yeah. minute conversation it happened. But he knew us. He had yeah. he had worked very, very closely with us. So it's, that's a different conversation. But for the rest, so okay, I'll, I'll here's how the contrast works. Uh, for a founder, they start meeting VCs one after the other, and they stop the moment first VC says yes to them. And with every VC, either you know, you're having either one or two conversations, and some of them, with some of them, five to six conversations till they reach a yes over there. And you're done. Whereas in a VC fund, uh, your best case scenario is you have 10 LPs only, because you know, no LP wants uh, to be more than 10% of the fund uh, in, in a certain point of view. But more often than not, you have many more LPs uh, in a fund. So if I, and in our case, we have around 40 odd LPs there. You know, in, in the, that means I need to get 40 people to say yes, as opposed to a founder who needs only one VC to say yes. And to get those 40 people to say yes, I need to have 500 meetings actually. I need to pitch to 500 of them, right. listen to 450 or 460 no's, and the four forty odd yeses that also offers several other meetings, so it's a it's 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 a grind even for the VC uh, and probably a much bigger grind than than uh, what the founders go through. But most founders don't realize that. 
And how does it work with your specific fund as such? So my fund is a single GP fund. So I know my GP does all of the fundraising himself. Mm-hmm. It's the one person going and pitching everywhere because you are, you are, you are three partners. Does one sit back and say, I will look after the portfolio while you guys go out and fundraise? Or is it all three? All three, or, have, to or, all three have to go. So, so here's how it works. So it's a divide and conquer. So basically, you, I'll go after some and go and meet someone. Now my other partner may go and meet someone. Unlikely that in that first meeting, that other person has said yes. But if the other person is interested, oh yeah, this sounds interesting. I want to learn more about it. Then they really want to meet all the entire team. And that means all, all the partners get involved. Uh, in pitching and building that relationship with the LP. So I, yes, I, I was watching, everyone's involved. everyone's involved. I was watching a video recently in preparation for this conversation where uh, some of the bigger hedge fund managers and PE managers talking about how they raise money from, um, you know, institutions and, and, and other wealthy individuals themselves. And one thing that they pointed out was the dynamics between the partners. And, you know, sometimes there's healthy debates and sometimes there's, you know, they differ on uh, vision for the fund uh, when they have conversations. What kind of questions do investors ask you, especially from a vision perspective and from a dynamic perspective between the partners themselves? So, yes, all partners and all partnerships have those healthy debates, have their own differences of views and opinions. But those are, for a partnership to be successful, you need those differences of opinion. You need those differing points of views. But at the same time, once you agree upon something, everybody has to be fully committed to what we agree upon. And if, uh, if you don't come across that and if you don't stay committed to that point of view, then the fund will fail. Then the fund, you know, as, because it's a, ten, a fund is a 10, 12 year commitment. And, and at some point in time, those differences will start uh, ballooning into something very big and disputes and the fund may collapse. So it is very, very important that yes, you have your debates, you have your differences of view, but once you come up on agreement, you commit to all of it and you stick to that commitment. And that's the commitment which an LP is also looking to see from you as a partnership. So they really want to see that are you all in sync as to what is going to happen and what you're going to be doing. Now, uh, I'm pretty sure you saw this will come out yesterday. Bessemer released all of its memos for uh, some of the investments it made. I'm really curious and I want to see if a VC firm ever comes out and puts out its investment pitch deck that it made to its LPs at some point in the future so that people just have a perspective about what really goes into a pitch or, a, or, or, or you know any presentation that uh, partners make when they're raising money. That'll be really, really very interesting if, if that ever happens. Yeah, no, that'd be an now, interesting exercise. I, I think uh, uh, I've not personally thought about it yet. Uh, but maybe I think at some point in time, I think, uh, there's no harm in open sourcing some of these, these pitches also. Uh, It'll be great, especially for first time fund managers and micro VC funds. In fact, as micro VC funds right. grow and, uh, in their, in their cycle of, uh, growth and from where they are, it could be a $20 million fund today, but eventually getting to $150, $200 million in maybe right. like 10, 15 years, it's very good to see that gradual process and how older incumbents are actually going about with the fundraising process. That'd be really interesting to, uh, to, to yeah. dig into. And I'd be very curious to see if there's a memo that ever comes out. And I think what best to do is cool, but I'd love to see from an LP perspective and from a GP perspective, what those uh, memos would look like. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, idea. And I think something to really think about it. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you alluded to this point about, um, you know, profitability and that being one of the questions that perhaps comes up and creating companies with higher leverage that are betting on certainty, uh, which is also known as pumping money into startups with higher burn rate to scale yeah. faster at a you know hundred or hundred mile an hour sort of rate is something that we're often seeing. You you said LPs, you, the pitch that you make to LPs is you invest and you forget about it for the next eight years. People invest in companies that don't make money. Do you think we'll ever see a change in venture investing to bring more profitability in the early stage? And how important is that change in, in, into the future, especially as newer funds come into uh, existence? I think it will come back. So if, you, if I dial back 10, 15 years ago, uh, most investments happened where you had, uh, at a unit level, most companies had to be profitable. Forget seed state, but you know, if I talk about series A and, and, and beyond investments, unit economics were, were important. And, rarely investments happened in companies where unit economics were negative uh, out there. And so you were largely investing in, in building or funding a company's fixed costs and fuel, which would help fuel growth and, and say, Hey, I'm going to take loss at a company level, but I'll be able to sell a lot more of whatever I'm trying to sell. And, and hence, you know, eventually we will, we will make money and we'll grow and become a large company faster. Somewhere uh, along the line, this whole thing changed and uh, uh, capital became you know as barriers to entry decreased for companies to get in it became very very important that i scale and become faster uh, before anybody else does uh, otherwise you know i will lose my competitive edge that became the norm and hence a uh, lot of money started being poured in at the very early stages uh, into the company even before the economics of the business were established and that is the new wave that at least we saw for the last five, six years. Now, my sense is it cannot go on forever, uh, but what, how long that this will last, I don't know. I really don't know. But uh, at some point in time, this profitability, eventually companies have to make profits and you can't keep burning money forever. Uh, it's, it's not an infinite pool or infinite well from where you can keep drawing money. So it has to dry up at some point in time. Uh, how long it will take? Who knows? You know, we are in an era of negative interest rates, uh, Feds pumping money like uh, anything, quantitative easing, helicopter money, all kinds of sorts is happening at a macro level, right? So, uh, at least as of right now, it seems that there's a lot of lot of money out there. And but when it dries out, nobody knows. And my right. fear is that the day it dries out, it's going to be really bad. Yeah, that's the hope. And we still have a lot of companies yeah. listed on the public markets that are making losses even to date, whose who share prices are fairly decent, uh, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Now, you brought up a very interesting question, uh, a very interesting point, And I have a follow-up question to that. How strong is lobbying in India? Not much. Why is that? And why is nobody taking a lead I on think, that? I uh, think the perception is that I want, to, I want to stay away from the, I, I don't want the government to be involved in what I'm doing. I think if the government gets involved in what we're doing, uh, the... But they are, the, aren't they? They, they, they are getting yeah, involved. They are they, involved. They, they, they're involved. It's not that they're not involved. They, of course, they're involved and there is regulation. But the perception is that, hey, the IT industry in the 1990s grew rapidly and we had an Infosys and Wipro and everything else, which became large companies because there was no government interventions, because there were allowed to operate in a free market economy kind of a way. They didn't have to go to the government to get a license for 
something, get government permission to do something and things like that. And the way I think so far the startup industry has, has worked is in that fashion itself. You know, it's been happening despite the, you know, the, the government companies can come and do what they want you know, and, and they're growing. And there's some minimal regulation around an AIF and, and taxation and things like that. And those, you know, those are an okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with what is happening right now. So hence there is, there is not much of lobbying or anything happening so far. But having said that, I think now that startups are getting more mainstream uh, and you have so many startups, I think uh, you may see a lot more regulation and government involvement in the next decade. And then, you know, some of these lobbying or some of these uh, government industry liaisons or interfaces may happen. Uh, but what exactly it will be, I, hard to predict or hard to say. But will it happen? I think it will happen. But last, last 10, 15 years, we, we did not need it. So I guess from an infrastructure point of view, we're not dead as yeah. yet. I mean, so yeah. to speak, even here, when you talk about lobbying as such in the US context, we're seeing technologies that are really bringing about that change. And I think we're in that phase one in India where it's all about uh, setting up the infrastructure and maybe, like you said, maybe in the next decade, we'll see a lot more lobbying that will take place mm. in the country. Now, before heading into my last, last segment, I had to ask you this question. It's it, it's maybe the biggest elephant in the room here, and it's it kind of surrounds uh, the difference in conversations that you have with domestic LPs and uh, foreign LPs. What have you observed? You know, what's been the biggest uh, learning experience apart from it being? You know, we we discussed about the challenges and opportunities and all of that. Who would you prefer raising funds from for say the next fund? It's probably a very difficult question for you to answer. Um, but say if there's an emerging fund manager, what kind of advice would you per perhaps give that uh, person about domestically raising or going outside and raising at this given point of time in uh, No, I, w I would advise industry. him to go domestically. I think there's a lot, lot more appetite domestically than what we anticipated. And I'll, I'll summarize it with one a statement which one LP made to me uh, and you know when we're raising they say that hey every day we read here uh, read headlines about you know Flipkart becoming big in movie becoming big you know, some other company becoming very very big uh, we but we as we don't have any access to any of this thing that is happening out there and if we want to take part in the tech boom of India or the you know the tech product economy of India the only option I have is to invest in InfoEdge stock, or which is basically Nokri.com stock, which was traded in public markets in India. And there is nothing else for me to do. And, you know, I'm watching everything on the sidelines. Uh, these, these companies are growing. These companies are becoming big. And there's no access for me. How do I get in? And so that, that realization is, is very, very deep within the Indian uh, LP community or, or, or the community which would potentially, which would usually be investing large sums of money uh, or which have money to invest uh, out there. So that kind of sums it up. So that's why there is appetite. There is a strong realization that value creation is now happening in these private markets before they end up in the public markets. Uh, and it is important for them to take, you know, be part of that story uh, because otherwise the entire money is going to go out of India. Mm. And this is why I feel lobbying in India has begun. 
and a lot more indian investors are now getting involved the country and the government wants the money to be in the country than be, being taken out of the country and i feel that process has begun and it's happened in the last couple of years which is why i posed that question to you and i'm really happy about that in a way that you know there's a lot more capital that's going to be situated in the country because more capital in the country means it can be cycled back into the ecosystem okay. and that's greater for the cycle. entrepreneurs yeah it creates a virtual cycle absolutely and that's one of the reasons why i feel it it began a couple of years ago and we're seeing a strong shift towards that and we're seeing it doing 2020 i think it's coming to the forefront with everything that's happened now before we jump off uh, we've got to do a rapid fire with you i'm going to shoot some questions your way and sure. you'll hit me back with some first thought answers that come to your mind okay great um so we'll start with this if you could farm a board of directors for your personal life yeah who gets a board seat and why Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very unusual rapid fire that I have. Uh, I think it's my it's my wife and my spouse. She gets the bochi. <laughs> Is somebody in the room as we speak? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh what's one thing that you like to change about venture capital in India? Ah, I think uh we celebrate a lot of the funding events, you know. Uh, that is uh, and that has become the benchmark of of success that hey i raised money or i funded yeah. something becomes a benchmark of success and i think that is in my opinion just a starting point and that cannot be the benchmark of success right. but that's the way kind of the indian ecosystem uh, looks like for somebody who's an outsider and and that's what you know even we vcs internally you know start celebrating so that we need an indian version of vc brags i don't know if you've yes. been following what's been happening here but uh, yeah. the, we need absolutely. an indian version for sure absolutely yeah. <laughs> just to keep everybody in check yeah uh what is the one most underrated quality of a venture capitalist ah oh, patience i think uh, a venture capitalist needs a lot of lot of lot of patience uh, because uh you know unlike a corporate uh, job you know i usually get quarterly feedback if you know if i'm working in a quarter uh, and regular company that i did x this month and at towards the end of quarter i know it's working or not working i make an investment account i don't know for the next 5 years whether it's right or wrong it takes 5 years for you to even realize what you've done is right or wrong so the feedback cycles are super long and so that that patience is super important is very important true If you weren't in VC today, I know you'd be in tech. You'd be building a tech company. Yeah. What kind of what sector would you perhaps be in? If I weren't a VC, yeah. If you weren't a VC, uh, or would I you even be, be in tech? I know you mentioned you wanted to be in tech. No, no I would be in tech. I would be, be in tech. tech. I, would, I, would, I, would, I would be building uh, some internet company. You know what exactly? I don't know, but don't it has know. to do with uh, some B two C consumer internet company. Mm. That's good to know. Yeah, I mean, the next question might be a really hard one. Uh, yeah. I think, what is one problem that no one is solving today, or is doing a really bad job in trying to solve that needs attention within the Indian context? I think. Uh, oh, that's a hard one. Uh, what's one problem which nobody is solving in the Indian context? Uh, because we see a lot of copycats and even i don't know yeah. if you saw this year's right. y combinator it was basically shopify for this and yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. this for that there was a lot of copycat models but what is one thing no, that people so, no one solving no so i i think you know so, so i i won't go into the copycat side of things and that's uh, that's the maturity level of the ecosystem because of which you know we have copycats and and you know by definition money will flow towards the low hanging fruits you know that's how uh, 
it finds a path of least resistance. So that is not my concern. My concern is more about you know the way we are building companies in India. And when I look at founders, and you know, I've worked in US. Uh, we've invested in companies in US, and we've seen in India also. Whenever a problem arises, an Indian company usually takes a people-first approach at solving that problem. They want to throw people at the, at the problem. They want to solve ops in a very inefficient, uh, or throw in a lot of ops and solve it in an inefficient manner because it's cheaper, it's quicker, but does not scale beyond a certain point of time. Whereas in Silicon Valley, I've seen that, you know, because labor is expensive and you don't have people available, you always, always think tech first and you always think scale first, scalability first in your, in your solution and your product thinking. And in India, that we're still not yet there. We're still, product thinking does not bring that scalability in. Product thinking tends to lead to, you know, throwing more people at the problem. Uh, and, and which is something which, you know, I've, I wish changes sooner because then we will, as a, as a ecosystem will actually uh, scale even more rapidly. I like that response. I think that's very well tied into why India has also historically not seen a lot of SaaS companies come out of the country as such. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's changing, but I think if we start addressing the operational side, as you mentioned, we'll perhaps see a few more companies and, it's, it's, it's changing it. I'm yeah. very optimistic that in the next five or six years, we'll see a good, big breakout success that comes out of uh, the country. Yeah. Now, what is one sector that you're incredibly bullish on? You know, you're agnostic. Yeah. So if you were to pick like one, what would you, what would you pick? So I, I think this whole hardware software combo seems uh, very, very exciting to me, actually, because uh, uh, it allows you to build a lot of modes and a lot of differentiated product uh, very early on. Uh, and at the same time, there's a lot of the secret of the, and the magic lies in the software, which, uh, which is also, so it kind of gives you the best of the defensibility and the modes that a software product gives. Uh, but at the same, uh, sorry, uh, the defensibility and the modes which a hardware product gives, but at the same time, the scalability that the software brings in, uh, in some sense. So that's, you know, we've seen some of those things. And you know, just to take a few examples, you know, the way electric vehicles will be built, you know, there's a hardware, but a lot of the magic in the electric vehicles actually sits in the software side of things. Uh, so that's, you know, an example of the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Very interesting, because I was, when you were giving that answer in my head, I was thinking about drones and drone infrastructure and or that really plays out in the future yeah. for us. But electric vehicles is a great example as well of you know where yeah. we're headed towards. Now, my last question to you is, what is your advice to emerging fund managers in India? So I think India is a, is a vibrant ecosystem. Uh, it's growing very, very rapidly, changing very fast, full of young entrepreneurs. Uh, so the opportunity is big. Uh, uh, my only thing would be to nurture the local uh, LP base, because I think uh, the local LP base is, is far more permanent in, in nature than uh, global LP base. And if you can uh, build those relationships early on and tie into that, I think it will be easy, uh, easier for you. And uh, the only second point is that uh, when you're thinking through your strategy, think through your reserve planning very, very, very carefully. Uh, and I've seen some fund, first-time fund managers uh, falter on that. This is fabulous piece of advice and a great note to actually end the episode on. And I've had such a wonderful time speaking to you. This is 
probably one of my favorite favorite episodes because there's so much insight packed into the last hour or so that you've been sharing all your uh, experiences and 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 learnings from the venture ecosystem in India. And I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners who are going to be listening to this episode as well will take so much away from where we were a decade ago to where we are right now and what we've seen the six, last six months and people really understand the complexities of venture capital as such. It looks yeah. so simple from the outside of, oh, it's just yeah. looking at companies and investing in it, but there's so much <laughs> that goes into it. Yeah. And I'm glad you broke it down to the most minutest of levels. Um, and this is, this is a great learning experience for me as well. Forget about the other listeners. I had such a great time learning about so many first-time things that I didn't know. No, thanks for hosting me, and I'm 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 glad you know we were able to do this, and you know, uh, looking forward to you know having more conversations like this. And that's the end of the episode, and one that I believe was one of the best episodes on the podcast so far. I really enjoyed speaking to Ritwik and learning more about fund dynamics and everything in between. Thank you once again, Ritwik, for being on the show. I really really appreciate it. Now, if you enjoyed that. It would be great if you could show us some love. Do subscribe to our podcast on any of the podcasting platforms. And while you're at it, also drop us a rating and review. It really helps others discover the show. Now, before we conclude, do not forget to check out Project PIF, a cloud-based mentorship platform for graduate admissions, and another startup called Podium which is a platform that brings people closer to virtual conversations around social issues. These two are amazing startups, so please do go ahead and check them out. We'll be back again next week and make sure you tune into that as I have a very, very special guest lined up for you all. He's young and currently crushing it, and he's going to be speaking about micro VCs. I'm super, super thrilled about that episode, so... I'll catch you on the flip side. Till then, stay safe everyone and keep hustling.